0: This audio teaching is provided by segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts.
1: Okay, welcome to session 18. We're going to be looking at Acts, uh, jumping in where we left off in chapter 11 and continuing hopefully to the end of chapter 14. Uh, we'll see We'll just kind of be jumping around in these chapters a bit and uh, see how far we get. So last week we were looking at, we we saw the beginning of Gentile inclusion in the book of Acts. And so we, we spent a lot of time looking at Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius and Peter's vision right? So Peter has this, uh, well, first Cornelius has a vision, and then Peter has a vision. He, he sees this sheet with all the animals in it, and he uh, re- gets the message from God that he's not supposed to refer to uh, those humans whom God has cleansed as common, as profane, right? He uses this word kynos, So uh, just like uh, Peter was failing to distinguish between the clean and unclean animals in the sheep that were in front of him, and he was just dismissing it all as unclean and common, you know, defiled and defiled by association. So Peter and the other believers were prone to dismiss Gentile believers or Gentile, God-fearing Gentiles as unclean. Right, I mean, pagans were obviously unclean, but the the message that God was trying to get through to Peter here is you can't you can't dismiss uh, just make these blanket dismissals, right? Peter had failed to see that God had cleansed certain Gentiles through their faith in Him and through their their uh, their fear of God, right? So we get introduced to this term, God fear, and we're going to see that term come up again uh, in this session as well, in some of our readings. Uh, so so we get this message that God has cleansed uh, these Gentiles, right? And then that carries on in the accusation that Peter receives from the other believers in Jerusalem, they say you went into the home of an uncircumcised person and you ate with them. you had the table fellowship with them, right? And that was that was out of bounds uh, as far as they were concerned. But uh, Peter, he relates the whole situation and and in uh, Acts 11:18, says, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So there's no um, insistence here that Cornelius and his household, uh, that all the males in his household must become circumcised, right? Uh, There's no Uh, insistence that they must go through formal conversion to Judaism. Uh, They realize through what God has done and the way these events transpired, and especially through the, the spirit being poured out on Cornelius and his household, that God has cleansed these Gentiles and brought them salvation, repentance unto life without... Uh, Needing to become Jews, right? Okay, so we're going to see that here. We've we've seen like the uh, kind of a the door open a crack. Now we're going to see the door thrown wide open. Uh, We're going to look at Acts chapter eleven, verses nineteen to thirty. And why don't we just go ahead and read that entire passage? So Acts eleven nineteen 19 to 30, does someone have that? Any, anyone willing to volunteer?
0: Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who upon coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Yeshua. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas
1: and Saul. Great. Thank you. All right. So, um, let's back up to where we started. Uh, So we see, uh, first of all, it's uh, now those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, right? So this this is taking us back in time a little bit. If we jump back to uh, verse chapter 8, right, we see that there was a great persecution against the church after, you know, Stephen was stoned. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, and then it talks in verse four, those who are scattered went about preaching. And then we, we read some of the adventures of Philip uh, in Samaria and then the Ethiopian eunuch and things like that. Right. So so we're kind of being taken back in time to to this this time frame when this sort of stuff is happening. Right. Um, this they didn't just go through Judea and Samaria. Uh, Luke has has. Uh, Withheld or or he's he's uh, postponed talking about this further expansion until this point because he's set this up to To follow the outline he laid out in chapter one, right? You will be witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and To the ends of the earth. So we're in phase We're in phase three now back in chapter eight. We were we were still kind of in phase two now we're full swing in phase three, and he's able to share about how uh, that persecution actually led people to go uh, as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Um, let's, uh, let's take a look at a map here. So Antioch, I don't know how well you can read this map, but Antioch is way up here, uh, this city up here. Jerusalem is way down here. So this is the land of Israel, right? You've got the Sea of Galilee, you've got the Dead Sea down here. Here's the horn where Haifa is right up in there. And um, then just north of the land of Israel, you have Tyre and Sidon, you have Damascus over here. Way, way up to the north, the northern edge of the province of Syria, you've got the city of Antioch. Um, Up here in Cilicia, you have the city of Tarsus, which is Paul's hometown, right? This is where Paul is from. And uh, if you remember back in chapter 9, Paul, or Saul, uh, he traveled from Jerusalem to Damascus to try and arrest the believers there. And instead, he had his Damascus Road experience and... um, then he became a believer and he lived for uh, several years in Damascus and was preaching there until that got him in trouble and they had to let him out uh, sneakily and he went down to Jerusalem. And again, he started to get in trouble. So they took him over to Caesarea on the coast, right about right about here, and sent him off to Tarsus, his hometown, back up here, right? So this is where, Saul has been hanging out. He's been hanging out in Tarsus this whole time, right? Um, so the the people who were spreading the message uh, after the persecution of Stephen, they're all along uh, the Phoenician coast, which includes Tyre and Sidon, all up here. Over here, you have Cyprus, this island, and all, all the way up to Antioch. And Antioch is a a very important city and it's very significant for the history of the early followers of Yeshua. Okay. So going back to our passage, we read there, these people are spreading the word to no one except Jews. So they're, they're preaching to Jews, right? But there were some of them men from Cyprus and Cyrene who Come and speak to you now. This translation says the Hellenists, Hellenists. Um, so this, they're speaking to the Greeks too. In this case, the term it means Gentiles, Greek-speaking Gentiles, not just uh, before when we saw it, it was talking about Greek-speaking Jews. Here we're talking about Gentiles. So they're not talking just to Jews. They're also talking to Gentiles, preaching the Lord Yeshua, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So, this is this is something new, right? Up until this point, we've had little isolated instances of non-Jewish people accepting uh, or hearing about Yeshua and coming to the faith, but there hasn't been this widespread Gentile mission, right? There hasn't been this widespread preaching openly to Gentiles yet. This is the first we encounter that. So, uh, you know, we had the Ethiopian eunuch, we had uh, Cornelius. In both of these cases, there is an explicit direction from God to go. Uh, you know, F- God told Philip to go and, and talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. God told Peter and had to uh, really drill it into him through a very vivid vision to go and talk to Cornelius and not to be afraid of doing so. Here we've got disciples preaching openly to non-Jews for the first time. This is a big deal, right? Uh, and Antioch is going to be the like the headquarters of the Gentile mission, as Luke presents it. Uh, it does not replace the role of Jerusalem by any means, but it's, it's here that the full inclusion of non-Jews into the community of believers is given. That's like the first full test run, you could say. Uh, And this is going to be kind of like the home congregation. It's going to be the sending congregation for all of Paul's missionary journeys up here in Antioch. This is like the the headquarters of the Pauline mission. All right. Take a quick look at Galatians chapter 2. There's a lot of important stuff that happens in Antioch. Uh. Paul talks about Antioch, too, in in the book of Galatians. He says, when Cephas, that's talking about Peter, right? "When, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, uh, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, we're not going to go into that passage any more in depth, other than to say that this has often been uh, misunderstood to mean uh, that you know, living like a Gentile means not keeping Torah and living like a Jew means keeping Torah and you're not supposed to keep Torah anymore. That's, that's not what Paul's saying here. Um, But yeah, we'll save that for another series, perhaps. Uh, Anyway, the point, point here is that there's this uh, tension that takes place regarding table fellowship, right? And ironically, it's Peter, the one who had the vision, the one who went to Cornelius, who gets tripped up in this and so does Barnabas, even Barnabas does, right? Um, and it takes place in Antioch. So this is all very close to home for Paul because that's that's his, I mean this is not his home, but this is becomes kind of like his adopted home congregation here at Antioch. And uh, as we'll read when we get to chapter 15, a very similar tension, uh, between those who are arguing for full inclusion of Gentiles and those who are arguing that no, they need to become circumcised uh, takes place in Antioch. So Antioch's going to be the center, like the, the headquarters of the Gentile mission. It's also going to be the epicenter of this conflict over what exactly is the role and status of these Gentiles. And that's going to be fleshed out. Uh, hopefully we'll get to that in the next session when we look at Acts 15. Okay, so um, yeah, so there's these rumors about disciples going out all the way to Antioch and preaching to Gentiles, and a great number uh, who believed turning to the Lord, right? The report comes to the believers in Jerusalem, the apostles, the elders there, and they send Barnabas to Antioch. Now, we've met Barnabas before, right? Uh, we met him back in chapter four. This guy, his, his name is Joseph, also called Barnabas, which means sons of son of encouragement, Barnava, right? He's a Levite. He's a native of Cyprus. Okay? So uh, remember, Cyprus is this island here. This is where he's from. He's been living in Jerusalem. Uh, lately, because remember he sold a field, as it says here, uh, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostle's feet. So he's he's put his money in with the Jerusalem community. He's he's fully dedicated to he's uh, you know part of that koinonia uh, that community there, right? So they send him all the way up to Antioch to check out what's going on there, and. If you recall here, it says that the people who came to Antioch and were preaching to Gentiles were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. So Barnabas probably knew some of these guys, right? He probably knew some of those natives of Cyprus who were now in Antioch preaching. And so he joins them. Uh, he's also a native from Cyprus and he also goes to Antioch and he, uh, he starts preaching to them as well, right? a great many people were added to the Lord. And so then it says, verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So why why does Barnabas go to Tarsus? Why why is he looking for Saul? Well, it it seems that uh, Barnabas saw that the community needed help discipling all these new Gentile believers. And apparently Barnabas knew Saul fairly well. We're not exactly sure how long of a history, how, how far they go back. But if you look at Acts 9, 27, we see with uh, well, this is after Saul has his Damascus Road experience. He believes in Yeshua you know, he's been preaching in Damascus and they try to kill him. So he comes to Jerusalem, but all the disciples are afraid of him. Barnabas is the one who takes him and brings him to the apostles and tells tells them about the Damascus road experience. So so maybe Barnabas uh, met him in Damascus after he became a believer. Uh, We're not exactly sure, but probably something like that, right? And he's the one that introduces him to the apostles. He may also have been uh, one of the brothers who brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus in the first place. At least 10 years have passed since Saul's Damascus Road experience, right? Uh, Saul's been up in Tarsus, in Tarsus for quite a while. And so Barnabas goes off to Tarsus to get Saul uh, to help. Uh, I guess Barnabas thought he was a pretty good teacher and would be really good at this. And so he brings them down to Antioch, and they're there for a year and taught a great many people. Okay, so this is, this is the route of, of uh, Barnabas. So Barnabas goes up from Jerusalem all the way up to Antioch. And then after he's been there in Antioch a little bit, he goes up to Tarsus to get Saul. And then with Saul, they come back to Antioch. Then at the end of chapter 11, uh, the community in Antioch send Barnabas and Saul down to Jerusalem to deliver this uh, relief, famine relief, right? They uh, have the this report from the prophets that there's going to be a famine, and so they uh, each give contributions and they send them down to the elders in Jerusalem by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This is something we see, by the way, uh, in uh, it comes up uh, quite a few times in Paul's epistles, that he's always going around collecting funds to deliver to the community in Jerusalem. Actually, if we go back to uh, Galatians chapter two, we see how He and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem after 14 years. So we're not exactly sure which trip this is. This might be the one that we just read about in chapter 11 at the end where they go up to Jerusalem, Barnabas and Saul. That could be the trip it's talking about here. Uh, And, uh, you know, he's talks about uh, what's going on. They meet with James and Cephas and John who seem to be pillars they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The poor here. Uh, this is it, 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 what's implied is that it's talking about the poor in Jerusalem. Right. Not just uh, remember to be nice to the poor people in general. This is uh, reminding Paul to bring a contribution to the believers in Jerusalem. And that's something he was eager to do. And we see that in, in other letters. We see that in Romans, we see that in in Corinthians uh, about Paul's eagerness to carry that out and bring a collection to the believers in Jerusalem. As he says, Paul says in Romans, if you've reaped spiritual benefits from the Jews, you owe it to the Jews to return the favor with material benefits. Um, something to that effect, right? So, um, oh, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Uh, some scholars are going to say, like, Antioch is is really where uh, the early Yeshua movement took its shape, right? This is where we have not just like in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I'm I'm arguing, is still the mother city, the metropolis, mother city of the entire, uh, the entire movement of Yeshua followers. And I think Luke makes that clear. the disciples, including Paul, are constantly coming back to Jerusalem, and that's the the seat of the, um, the authority, right? for the early believers. But it's in Antioch that the real, uh, formation. The social formation takes place where we've got Jews and non-Jews coming together to form one assembly, right? And it says that they were first called Christians. It doesn't say they called themselves Christians, um, but it also doesn't say that it was a uh, pejorative uh, title. Sometimes you you hear you hear both sentiments, right? Uh, in <laughs> Conventional Christian circles sometimes like to think that this is where they adopted the term for themselves. Uh, sometimes I've heard Messianic teachers say, no, this was a, a pejorative name-calling that outsiders gave them. Uh, well, uh, there's nothing implicit in the term Christianus that would imply that it's pejorative. It's not, a, it's not a bad word or bad name or anything like that. It means one who follows the Messiah, right? So um, in Hebrew would be Meshichim, in English you would say Christian or Messianic, right? It's the same sort of thing. Okay, but this doesn't imply that they're becoming a different religion or a different, uh, uh, or separating from Judaism, right? If anything, this implies that they are a sect of Judaism. You know, the different sects of Judaism had different names, and here the Other Jews in Antioch are recognizing the followers of Yeshua as those distinctly devoted to the Messiah, right? Uh, They're still part of the Jewish faith, but they're devoted to Yeshua. All right, let's jump to chapter 12. I'm going to start just by reading the first couple verses, and then we'll talk about some stuff here. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the ecclesia, the church. Uh, By the way, remember when the disciples sent, uh, they sent Saul up to Tarsus, it says there is finally peace. (laughs) Um, Well, now Saul's left Tarsus and now there's persecution again. I don't know if that's a coincidence or what, but it just seems like Paul has that tendency to get... I mean, Paul's not even in Jerusalem at this time, and yet there there's still persecution coming anyway. I just think that's that's funny. So about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the assembly, the Ecclesia. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Uh, this, I mean, that's a lot that Luke packed into just one one sentence, right? It's uh, tragic. Uh, thing. This is this is the first, uh, the first of the twelve to be put to death. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Uh, this was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So, by the way, when it says it pleased the Jews. Uh, obviously, it didn't please the Jewish believers. So it was it was certain Jews that it pleased. Uh, you see this often. This comes up especially in the Gospel of John, where it'll use the term "the Jews," and what it means is the religious leaders of Judea. Right? It's it's a it's a, a term often applied to the leaders, not just. I mean, they were all Jews, right? The apostles were Jews. They're Jewish believers. Uh, so when it says. It please the Jews. It's talking about the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Okay, it's we talked about this a bit back in when we were looking at chapter one. But notice how uh, this is um, this is the first of the twelve to die, aside from Judas. Right? Of course, when Judas died, right away they go and replace him with uh, Matthias. Right. Uh, they they seek to to fill up that number 12 here when james is killed they don't they don't try to find a replacement for james james is not replaced and in fact chapter 12 here this is this marks the point at which the sun begins to set on the apostles we're gonna uh, as we go on through the book of Acts, the apostles are gonna become less and less prominent until they they disappear altogether. And Luke doesn't tell us what happened to them; he just stops talking about them. By the time we get to the book of Acts, there's no mention of the apostles in Jerusalem uh, or anywhere. Instead, all we hear about are James and the elders. It's James and the elders who. Who take over the leadership of the community in Jerusalem? Not the James that got killed, of course. Um, you know, no sooner do we learn about the death of James, the brother of John, than a few verses down, we hear about Peter says, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Obviously, this is a different James, right? This is talking about James, the brother of Yeshua, right? so one james is gone another james rises we're going to hear more and more about james and the elders and less and less about the apostles uh so this story we're not going to read through it all but peter gets put in prison and he has this miraculous escape where this angel comes wakes him up and says come on let's go get out of here and you know all the soldiers are asleep his chains fall off the doors open by themselves and he walks out and he thinks he's having a vision. You know, I guess he's used to having visions. That happens a couple times in the book of Acts. And he uh, he ends up coming to his senses once he's out and, and the angel disappears. And he's like, Wow, God, God delivered me. Now I'm sure the angel of the Lord, the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So then he goes running over to the house of Mary. The mother of John, whose other name was Mark, Mary, the mother of Mark, uh, goes to their house, and they are all gathered praying. And um, he's knocking, and the servant girl uh, doesn't open the door because she's so overjoyed. And finally, they come, and and they find out it's him. And this is what he does: he motions to to them with his hand to be silent he describes to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. This is significant because back in chapter 8 verse 1, we saw that there is persecution and it scattered everyone except for the apostles. Now even the apostles are being scattered from Jerusalem, right? So uh, yeah, so this Luke is giving us, uh, he, and Luke isn't going into details for us, but he's giving us little signals about sort of the uh, this transfer of authority that takes place from the 12 to James and the elders. And we'll see that. And actually, after this point, Peter is going to make one cameo appearance in chapter 15. But other than that, we don't hear about Peter anymore. You know, for the first 12 chapters, give or take, The focus is on peter this is the point where it turns the focus turns off of peter and onto paul from now on in the book of acts the focus is going to be on paul Uh, the rest of chapter 12 talks about the death of herod he's eaten by worms and he dies And then in the last verse, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they'd completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other other name was Mark. So uh, John, Mark is with them. Uh, Then we get to chapter 13. Let's take a quick look there. So in Acts chapters 13 and 14, we're going to read about Paul's first missionary journey. Yeah, let's just look at the first uh, couple of verses here. Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Uh, there's a couple things we can, we can talk about here. First of all, uh, this is after, uh, like, how many years have passed since Paul became a believer or Saul? Right. This is this is a long time that has has passed. These are Saul didn't go out on a big missionary journey right away. Uh, this is this is after he's already had a lot of formative work in his own life, and he's already been heavily involved in the community at Antioch. Now the community at, at Antioch becomes a, a springboard, sending Paul and Barnabas out. Uh, to other communities. All right, and and then in the rest of chapter 13 and in chapter 14, we read about Saul's journeys. Uh, let's take a look at where he goes here. So, starts out at Antioch, goes down to Cyprus, goes up by land across Cyprus, up to Pamphylia, area of Perga. He goes to another city called Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch, then down to Iconium Lystra Derby, then back the way he came, and then sails over to Antioch. When they get to uh, Pamphylia, this arrow here, the black arrow, is where Mark leaves them, because they take Mark along with, him, uh, with them, but uh, once they, after they've been in Cyprus and they get here, for some reason, and Luke doesn't tell us why, for some reason Mark left. And Paul kind of holds that against Mark later on in the book of Acts. He doesn't want to take Mark with them again later. So that'll become a contentious issue between Paul and Barnabas. But, uh, but yeah, so it starts with a mission in, in Cyprus, on this island of Cyprus. They go to a bunch of different cities. They walk along the coast, uh, and then it leads them to these coastal cities in Asia Minor up into uh, Galatia. So if I just zoom out here. Okay, so here you've got Asia Minor. Uh, this province is the province of Asia. This is the, the Roman province of Galatia. So when Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, he's writing to people in this region, right? Probably around Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, these cities here. So um, yeah, so that's that's not too far removed from Antioch, uh, but it is it is still quite a journey if you're uh, to travel from one place to another in, in those days. Okay, so that's that's the route that his his journey takes in these two chapters of Acts. Let's take a look at some of the details here. So they're being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They sail to Cyprus, and it talks about what happens there in Cyprus. Uh, jump down to verse 13. And let's take a look at these verses here. Now Paul and his companion set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, right so they're leaving they're leaving Paphos on the island of Cyprus and they come to the city of Perga in the Roman province of Pamphylia okay and that's when John left them and returned to Jerusalem i don't know why but he did and they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia that's a, that's quite a journey inland right up to Antioch and uh, so in Antioch on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Uh, what does this remind you of? We, uh, this should be a bit of a deja vu moment for us, right? Uh, if you recall back in the gospel of Luke, Chapter Four. We have a similar description. In fact, Luke, in these two places, here in the Book of Acts and back in the Gospel of Luke, he gives us the most detailed description of a synagogue service that we have from any first-century source. Uh, back in Luke chapter four, Yeshua comes to his hometown Nazareth, talks about how they had they he stood up to read the scroll of Isaiah, and then he sat down and gave a teaching, right? So we've got the description of the the reading of scripture and the invitation to give a sermon, and the same thing is happening here. So we're, we're supposed to, as we're reading this, be like, ah, I remember, this has happened before, right? And of course, what happened in Nazareth, the people rejected his message. So we should be expectant here are the people going to reject paul's message paul's invited to preach and he's going to give a long sermon here we'll take a look at that in just a second but uh we're set up to expect the possibility of a rejection let's take a look at how this pans out i i'd like to get a volunteer to read how far should we read okay let's let's go from verse 16 Two. 25
2: so paul stood up and motioning with his hand said men of israel and you who fear god listen the god of this people israel chose our fathers and made the people great during this, their stay in the land of egypt and with uplifted arm he led them out of it and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took four hundred and fifty years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when, he... I lost it. And when he had removed him he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will of this man's offspring God has brought to Israel a savior Yeshua as he promised before his coming John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people all the people of Israel and as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie.
1: Great, thanks. So this this sermon, it goes on quite a bit. We'll uh, look at some scattered verses here in just a second, but I just want to... Uh, highlight a couple things that we've seen so far. So uh, one thing I forgot to point out was back in verse 9, as you see, suddenly we're reading about a guy named Paul, whereas uh, at the beginning of the chapter, we're reading about a guy named Saul. Where did the change occur? In verse 9, it says, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, uh, at Elemis, the the magician. Anyway, so, so what happened here? All of a sudden, you know, Saul gets to Cyprus. On Saul's on his missionary journey from Antioch. He gets to Cyprus, comes over here, and suddenly he starts being called Paul. Why is that? Well, uh, I argued the uh, a couple sessions ago that uh, my theory is Luke's readers would have been familiar with who Paul was, but they wouldn't have known who Saul was. Luke intentionally uses his Hebrew name at the beginning to set it up for a literary surprise when we get to here and suddenly realize, whoa, he's talking about Paul. And suddenly you you uh, see everything you've just read in a totally different light. I, I, anyway, that's that's a theory. I don't know for sure. But this is not a divine name, cha- name change or anything like that, right? This is... Uh, Shaul would have been his Hebrew name, and Paul would have been his Roman name. He was a Roman citizen, so he had to have a Roman name as well. Uh, And the name Shaul doesn't translate super well into Greek. It's actually, it's not a very uh, nice, nice, it it sounds similar to a not so nice word in Greek. So you could see why uh, he would be more inclined to go by the name of Pavlos in in Greek, instead of "savlos," so that's uh, that's probably what's going on here. Um, okay, so then they get to so they're in Antioch in Pisidia. They're in the synagogue, and he starts to give this sermon. Right? He this sermon at it sounds very similar to some of the sermons we've already read. Right, He gives a little rundown on Israel's history. Now, this is all stuff you would assume that everyone in in Antioch, Pisidian Antioch is already familiar with. But for, for Luke, what it does is it emphasizes the fact that uh, the gospel, as far as Luke is concerned, has to be part of the story of israel the story of yeshua does not make sense outside outside the story of israel that's something that i think we uh today uh, i mean most uh, a lot of believers throughout history have lost touch of that fact right we've we've reduced the gospel down to these four spiritual laws or, or principles or whatever and i'm not trying to uh say the four spiritual laws are all bad or things like that. But when we reduce the gospel to a set of theological propositions, instead of seeing it as the story of Israel, the culmination of the story of Israel, we begin to stray from the gospel as it's presented in the scriptures. For Luke, you know, over and over again, Yeshua is coming can only be understood in the context of Israel's story. So just like, uh, what's his name, Stephen. Stephen gives a rehearsal of Israel's story and uses that as his defense. Uh, Even even Peter gives uh, in his sermon in Acts chapter two, and in some of his other sermons, he gives a very mini rundown of Israel's story. Paul's doing the same thing here. Uh, this time, Paul is focusing on, uh, he kind of rushes through the first part to get to the appointing of David as king, right? And this this is the, the big thing he's focusing on. He, uh, God raised up David to be the king, uh, who's a man after my heart who will do all my will. And Paul's Paul's emphasis here is that Yeshua is that promised Son of David. Yeshua is the promised heir of the Davidic dynasty, and he is the restoration of the Davidic monarchy. He's the true Davidic king, right? This is all this is all restoration of Israel language, right? Uh, I, you know, still here we are, almost halfway through the Book of Acts, and the theme is still the restoration of Israel. So, uh, and then he brings up John the Baptist and how John was preparing the way for this other one who's going to come. Uh, notice at the beginning how Paul addresses the people here. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God. Okay, so we've got Andres, Israel, Israelite, so men, Israelites, And ufovumenu, the fearers of tontheon, those who fear God. So, ufovumenu tontheon, these are the God-fearers, right? We already met one God-fearer, that's Cornelius, back in chapter 10. And we're going to meet more as we continue. Uh, Luke uses this term, uh, fovuminos. Uh, uh fearers, people who fear, right? That's where we get the word phobia in English. Uh, those who fear God, and and later he'll switch to the term sevomenos, meaning like those who uh, are who who worship God. So he uses these two terms interchangeably. Uh, these are Gentiles. These are not Jews, right? These are uncircumcised Gentile sympathizers <laughs> gentiles who are sympathetic to judaism the, and the, they're attending synagogue right paul's in the synagogue and he's talking to an audience and there's all these non-jews there these these gentile god-fearers in attendance and actually as we'll see almost every single synagogue in the diaspora that luke mentions he mentions this uh, plethora of gentiles in attendance Right. This is. The, it, the way Luke presents it, it's it seems that there were every synagogue had this penumbra of Gentiles who were who were kind of part of the community, but they weren't exact. They weren't fully Jews. Right. They weren't circumcised. They weren't proselytes or or converts. They hadn't gone through a, a conversion ritual, but they kept Torah they went to the synagogue on Shabbat, and they followed the God of Israel, just like Cornelius, right? Cornelius was this righteous Gentile. Uh, so these guys are already, uh, they're already familiar to some extent or another with scripture. They're familiar with Torah. They're familiar with, uh, you know, they're, they're worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're not Jews. Okay. And then again, down in verse 26, he talks to them again. Brothers, so Andres, adulfu. so men, brothers, uh, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. That's that same word, fovuminu. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. So he's including the God fearers in this message, but he's still differentiating between the Jews in his audience and the Gentiles in his audience, right? The sons of the family of Abraham are the Jews. The ones who fear God are the Gentiles. So then he goes on to talk about how the, the religious leaders in Jerusalem condemned Yeshua. They asked Pilate to have him executed. Uh, They put him on the cross, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And he appeared uh, to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses, the apostles. They were eyewitnesses of his resurrection, right? And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has also fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Yeshua, as also it was written in the second Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. This is, this is a kingly psalm, right? Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm for the Davidic king. This is the psalm announcing the, uh, um, the Davidic king. So by quoting that and talking about the resurrection of Yeshua, it's it's Yeshua's resurrection that confirms his status as the true Davidic heir and the true Davidic king. Um talking about the sure and holy blessings given to David. This, you know, sounds kind of like the stuff Peter was talking about in Acts chapter 2. Yeshua is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. And the resurrection is proof of that, right? You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's the same verse that Peter quoted from Psalm 16. Uh, For David, you know, he fell asleep. And he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Exact same argument that Peter used back in chapter two. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law, the Torah of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And he quotes this passage speaking of. Uh, people not believing the message, right? Uh, Let's look at the response that he gets. As they went out, this we're in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. That sounds like a pretty positive reception. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So we've got... We've got uh, Jews, and <laughs> this uses the phrase devout converts to Judaism. In Greek, it's uh, sevomenon proseluton." So it's it's using this phrase, um, sevomenos, which is the term Luke uses elsewhere of God-fearers, and ties it with the term "proselutos" or proselyte, right? There's a lot of... Uh, disagreement among scholars as to how exactly to understand this phrase, because if we had just the phrase sivomenos, we would assume he's talking about uncircumcised Gentile sympathizers. They're not converts. They've not gone through formal conversion to Judaism. These are sympathizers. Uh, If we had just the term proselutos, most people assume that term means a formal convert to Judaism, proselyte. That's how where we get the word proselyte, right? Which is he talking about? Are these sympathizers or are these converts? Or does Luke not make a distinction between the two? Uh, it's, It's a complex question, we can't go into it all here, but let me just say that contrary to popular opinion and what you'll sometimes hear people say, proselytos, the Greek word proselytos does not always mean convert does not always mean a formal convert to Judaism. It can refer also to Gentile sympathizers who are not circumcised. And it's, in my opinion, it's most likely that that's what's going on here. Luke is talking about Gentiles who are not circumcised. So devout converts is maybe not the best way to translate it. It'd be better to translate it devout sojourners or something like that. This is the word... Uh, the Greek word used to translate the Hebrew word ger in the Torah, the, the stranger or the sojourner, right? And in the Greek translation of the Torah, that term is used not of uh, later in rabbinic literature, it becomes a technical term for proselyte. But in the first century here, that's not the case. And in fact, Philo uses the term "proselutos" to mean a sympathizer, not who is not circumcised. Okay, anyway, that's a bit of a rabbit trail, but uh, it might be important for when we talk about chapter 15. <laughs> okay, let's uh, move on. Uh, I want to try and get through this before we wrap up. Uh, th- the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is, <laughs> this, you know, this is uh, maybe a bit of an exaggeration. Maybe Luke is using hyperbole a little bit here. Almost the whole city. Uh, perhaps what Luke means is almost everyone in the city who is either Jewish or sympathetic to Judaism uh, came to, to hear the word. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, they end up getting driven out of the region, um, and it goes on. Okay, so I, I just want to talk briefly about this this phrase here, where Paul says, "We're turning to the Gentiles." We're going to. This is the first of three such instances in the Book of Acts where Paul proclaims that you know the, the Jews reject the message, so he's going to the Gentiles now. Traditional Christian interpreters have seen this as a signal that God is rejecting the Jewish people and he's choosing the Gentile church. He's rejecting the Jews, he's choosing Gentiles instead. A number of reasons why that's wrong. That's not that's not the way we should understand what's going on here. For one, note what happens when he gets to the very next city. <laughs> Chapter 14, verse 1. At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke so that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So what happened to leaving the Jews and going to the Gentiles? Now he's going to the Jews again, <laughs> right? So, so obviously, this is not like a once-for-all statement that we're done with Jews, we're never going to preach to Jews again. That's not the point. The point is that in this case, uh, it is the Gentiles who receive it And the Jews, uh, it's not a wholesale thing. It's not a wholesale rejection from all the Jews because some of the Jews accept the message. Uh, And the point is that we could understand this to mean he's being driven out of the synagogue and is going to be preaching in, in Pisidian Antioch, in this particular city, he's going to be discipling these Gentile believers more closely. Anyway, we'll come back to this statement when uh, we see this same theme come up later. One last thing I want to point out is when Paul gets to, in chapter 14, we have this really uh, almost humorous occurrence that takes place when he gets to Lystra and Derby, these cities here. So he's he's gone from Antioch and he's going deeper into this mountainous region of Galatia where it's, it's kind of um, this is further away from what we would think of as big city civilization. uh, And uh, it's kind of more hick country. (laughs) So um, let's, let's pick it up in verse eight. It's Lystra he starts preaching and he ends up, there's this crippled guy there that's listening. And Paul sees that this guy has faith to be made. Well, in in Greek, it says literally he has faith to be saved. He has faith to be saved. Um, You know, salvation can mean like salvation from a physical ailment, which I think is certainly implied in this case, but it can also mean spiritual salvation as well. And so he, Uh, he heals the guy. And right away, uh, everyone is, uh, the the crowds, they lift up their voices saying, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And so they call Barnabas Zeus and they call Paul Hermes because Paul did all the talking. (laughs) Uh, Hermes was like the messenger god, right? And so uh, then they they even try to offer sacrifices to them and Paul and Barnabas go and rush out into the crowd, and tear their garments, and try and get them to stop. Anyway, uh, the the Jews came from Antioch, Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, and persuaded the crowds, and they stoned them. It's quite a, a contrast, um, but actually, yeah, we do eventually read that, uh, so they thought Paul was dead, but of course he's not. He gets up, and the disciples gathered around him. He entered the city, and then he goes on to Derby, and then they come back to Lystra, Lystra, and then to Iconium, and then to Antioch, and go back the way they had co- had come in the first place. It's interesting to contrast what takes place in Lystra with what takes place in Antioch. So in Lystra, Paul tries to preach to a, gra- a crowd of pagans. These are not—he's not in a synagogue. These are not God fears. These are pagans, right? And they end up trying to sacrifice to him. Uh, the message just it goes wrong, right? In Antioch, however, he's preaching in the synagogue to God fears, and they they come flocking to the message, right? These These Gentiles sympathetic to Judaism are the ones who are flocking to it. So this is what we're going to see over and over again in the book of Acts. Um, there is uh, moderate success among, the Jews, outstanding success among Gentile god and very little success among pagans. So, uh, you know, it's almost, it's almost like the story of Lystra you could take away is, is that trying to preach open air to inveterate pagans doesn't really work. Uh, God has it, it has to be a crowd of people that God's already working in their hearts, and um, it's these God fearers that turn out to be the most fertile soil for planting the message of Yeshua. All right, um, so the last let's just look at the end of chapter fourteen. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they'd spoken the word in Perga, they went through Italia there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. This is Syrian Antioch, where they started out, right? So they've come full circle all the way back to their their sending congregation. Uh, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. All right, so that concludes Paul's first mission, missionary journey. And that will conclude our session for today.
0: Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segulah.net May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him. And together, may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.